That's a pretty awesome song. Probably a pretty good message. You know, anybody want to keep your chains? Anybody want to stay in prison a little longer? Want the devil hanging around? Want your old bad habits just to keep you down? Somebody testify. All right. All right. Let's look at Philippians chapter 1. Glad to have you here. You'll find out why Sam picked that song when we get to reading in the scripture today. <laughs> Advancing through adversity. Philippians 1.12. Let's stand together. Paul writes, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me, and we're talking about those chains in prison, have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. But the latter preach Christ out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense... Or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads. And this I pray, that the people at Brazil, First Church of the Nazarene, their love may abound still more and more in all knowledge and all discernment, that they may approve the things that are excellent, that they may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you didn't recognize that, you've missed the last two weeks. That prayer. I'll just pray. Well, last week we finished the introduction section of Paul's letter. The greeting, the thanksgiving, and the prayer formed the introduction. And I just read the prayer, putting in your name, just as we've been telling you to do. And I uh, didn't know exactly how this was going to work in my own personal devotions, but this week God just laid a couple of people in my heart, and I just kept putting their names in there. All week long. Is that okay? And next week, maybe somebody else. I don't know what, whatever the Lord's going to do, but I got that prayer with my devotional stuff. And there's more copies of it out there on the, on the bench and um, welcome table. And, and if you haven't prayed that for somebody, you need to start praying it for somebody. Because it's God's will that we pray for other Christians and build them up. I need it. You need it. Amen. So we looked at that introduction, and today we want to begin our study of the body of the letter. And Paul starts the body of the letter, as is normal in his time, 
with giving a little insight into how he is doing. So you, you do the greetings, you identify the people, and, and you say what you're thankful for, and then you give a prayer, and that's okay. Now he goes into what is he doing himself? How is he feeling? Well, I've had the measles for three weeks. You know, the writer would tell whatever's going on in their life and kind of lay the groundwork before they get into anything else. So the body of the letter starts with that. And what was Paul's situation? What is Paul sharing? Paul was waiting trial before Caesar. Caesar, the emperor of Rome. Of course, there were various Caesars. They had different names, Augustus and so on. And Caesar is in no hurry to deal with all the petty issues of his vast empire. But every Roman citizen, which included Paul, had a right to ask for Caesar's, Caesar's verdict, uh, the emperor, to, to decide on his or her case. And so Paul is saying, I'm appealing to Caesar because they were trying him for heresies and different things, his religion, basically. And um, so he claimed the right as a Roman citizen to not be tried just in the other courts, but also to go all the way to the Caesar. And so he's waiting in prison until Caesar's ready to hear his case. So the, Paul's situation is he's a prisoner. Now there's some indication from Luke's account in the, um, the writing of Acts that Paul was held in house, house arrest here in Rome for two years. As a Roman citizen prisoner, Paul was chained to an imperial guard 24-7. They come in on shifts. And different guards rotated through this duty. And these guards were not refined. They were not educated uh, like Paul was. And they could be brutal in action. They could be hasty in speech. And, and uh, today, I was trying to think of what it would be like in today's society. Maybe it would be like a motorcycle gang or something. The tats, the, you know, the, the aggressive behavior, the, you know, or it could be drug dealers. I don't know, uh, gang members. You know, they're kind of the, can you imagine in his day being 24-7 chained to a big burly guy who, who all he has known for a living is chopping people's guts out? I mean, that's what they did. They conquered nations by killing people. So some think that Paul, here as a prisoner, uh, was getting closer to his trial as he began to write the Philippians. He's already wrote, written to the Ephesians and some others. But, um, and he may have been placed, actually, since there were... His trial date may have been finally moved closer that they actually moved him to a, more of a regular prison out of the house arrest in which he was in. And so he might have been even in worse confinement situations than, than had been. But being in prison for at least two years, Paul was obviously very much restricted from doing what he wanted to do, what God had called him to do, which was to go out and tell people about Jesus Christ, and when he'd preach a while and get a few of them saved, then he'd start a church. And then he would get that church organized, and then after it was going real good, if they didn't run him out of town, he would move on to a different location. Most of the time, they ran him out of town. So that was his passion. That's what God called him to do. And now he can't do that because what? He's stuck in a cell or in a prison or in a home 
with guards 24-7. So that's a big restriction. And Paul's life and ministry would appear to have been put on hold. The, the wait would have seemed endless. The guards would be a constant aggravation to him. The prison restrictions would have clashed against Paul's drive to get the gospel message out. I want to go and tell somebody else. I want to start another church. Paul's friends here at Philippi that he's writing to would have been concerned about Paul. They were praying for Paul. They heard he was in prison. He's been in there for a couple of years. They, they even sent one of their persons from their congregation, Epaphroditus, to Paul, carrying their greetings and their concern and probably some provisions. And Epaphroditus gets sick. Now he's getting better, so Paul's going to send this letter back with him to his friends there at the Philippian church. Paul knew that his friends in Philippi had heard he was in prison and were concerned about his health. No doubt they thought he was bitter. They probably thought he was depressed, discouraged, down. So they were sending information and, and letters and encouragement and, and uh, food and, and other things for him, along with their prayers. Nothing would be further, though, than the truth. Paul, bitter, Paul, depressed, you and I might have been, but he was not. Paul was not concerned about his chains. He was rejoicing in the spread of the gospel. And that's the way he ends this personal section, that he's rejoicing. <laughs> so this is the focus of this section of Paul's letter. He started to tell them of his personal situation in prison, but Paul's commitment to Christ was so complete that he quickly switches over to the good news. That the gospel was still reaching out, people were getting saved, ministry was still happening, even though he was in prison. So let's look at the three ways Paul saw the gospel advancing through adversity. Advancing through adversity. The first way is his chains enabled new conversions. His chains enabled new conversions. Literally, they did. Verse 12, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to the rest that my chains are in Christ. His chains enabled new conversions. He started this personal section by writing, I want you to know that my being in prison has actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Now, the Greek word for furtherance carries the idea of a group of soldiers who go before, we call them engineers, they used to call them pioneers, who would go before the, the army and advance and prepare the way. Sometimes they had to build bridges over, uh, you know, streams or whatever the case was, or fortification, uh, you know, machines to, to catapults, things like that. All kind of stuff that they would, they would build. But in this case, the picture is of these guys going before and preparing the way by cutting down trees and underbrush so that the army can march through unhindered when they reach that forest or, or whatever situation. So it's specifically to cutting down trees and underbrush. That's what this word means. And uh, so most people would see prison and chains as an impenetrable fortress. 
uh, a, a forest of trees that you couldn't get through with your army and hauling your siege equipment and whatever the case would be, they can't get through. There was no way that the gospel is going to be shared in prison. There's just no way it's going to happen. These old burly guards, you know, there's just no way. I just don't want them to kill me while I'm in there, right? Please don't kill me. Don't eat me. I'm pretty scrawny sitting here in this prison. I'm down to skinny bones. Take your aggression out on that rat over there in the corner. But leave me alone. You know? Wouldn't that be the way you feel? But wait a minute. Paul had been in prison before. In fact, wasn't it in the town of Philippi where he started this church that he's writing to? Wouldn't they have clicked this together because he was there and, and Lydia gets, gets saved and then this, this girl who was going around with divination and, and she was with a, filled with the evil spirit and was able to, to make some proclamations about Paul and, and so he said, come out of her and, and she became free from her demon possession and that made his owners mad and so what they do, they put him in prison. Paul had been in prison before. They put him in stocks and bonds with Silas alongside of him. And guess what Paul and Silas did while they were in prison? They grumbled and complained and caused a big ruckus. Is that what it says? No. They were, they were weirdos. They were in prison and they decided to start singing hymns. Exactly what it says. I don't know what those hymns were, probably psalms. But they were singing and praising God while they're in the stocks inside of the prison. And guess what God did? He says, I kind of like that music. So he sends an earthquake and takes down the prison. That's pretty cool. So begin to think about this, and the Philippians are thinking about this, and he's, he's in prison, and he's doing what? He's leading the jailer and his family to the Lord. I, I, I believe this jailer never had anybody quite like Paul. You put him in stocks, you beat him, you do all this kind of stuff, and he's singing to the Lord. And God sends an earthquake, and, and he comes and tells you about Jesus and leads you and your whole family to the Lord, and you become part of one of the founding members of the new church. So Paul didn't see jail as an impassable barrier to the gospel message. He saw the prison as an opportunity to share Jesus through song and word. Where were the other prisoners and jailers going to go? They ain't going nowhere. Might as well preach to them. Might as well sing to them. You have a captive audience. Unlike me, where people can sleep and do whatever they want, and go and go to the bathrooms. Do in his case, they were stuck. They had to be there. So when Paul saw trees, he got out his axe and began to prepare the way for the gospel. Amen. Isn't that a sermon? That is a sermon. Well, there ain't no way in my situation 
No good can ever come out of this. Ain't no way. Paul, he, he was super Christian. Me, I'm just a nobody Christian. I'm chained to these burly guards. They hardly even speak English. All they know is, shut up, measly Paul. Jesus loves me, this I know. Try to picture this. So if Paul can share the story of Jesus in prison, what is your and my excuse for not sharing the gospel in our situation today? Ouch. I don't know if somebody's been chained to you besides your spouse for the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years. But they're already a Christian. Find somebody else. Chain up to them. <laughs> oh boy, I can see it now. But ladies and gentlemen, certainly with some prayer and some little bit of effort and a little sweat equity put into the system, we can get out an axe and begin to find somebody around our way that needs to be prepared for the gospel to get through to their hearts. Certainly we know somebody. And they ain't part of our little culture, or they may not be part of our little system, and they may be different than us in some way, but God brings them across your life, and we're going, uh-uh. Ain't no part of that. Because they're not the right ethnicity or they're not the right age or they're not the right whatever it is. But with some prayer, folks, and a little bit of boldness, there's some trees that need chopped down to prepare the way for the gospel to get through. And I'm not telling you to chop down the people. I'm telling you to chop down the obstacles so you get to the people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And a lot of the obstacles we chop down are in our minds. These are big, bold guards, and I'm scared to death. Paul wrote next that he was being guarded by the palace guard, which meant the Praetorian Legion or the Imperial Guard, that the Roman empires from Augustus on had a hand-picked group of 10,000 elite soldiers that they stationed there. These are the best of the best. They stationed them there in Rome and some of them in the surrounding cities if, if they got too many because some of them expanded it to 16 or, or more, 1,000 picked soldiers, and these were initially Roman soldiers because they would be really loyal. They weren't just mercenaries. They were the best. And they became known as the Praetorian Guard or the Palace Guard or the Imperial Guard. And they were paid better than the rest, and they, were, they would be in this for 12 to 14 years, and when they re, uh, finally got done, they would be given a, a bonus check and everything. I mean, it was it was an awesome job if you could become part of this elite group. 
This elite group got so strong and powerful that sometimes they would even, when an emperor died, they would even pick the next emperor from out of their ranks. Because these guys were 10,000 strong, and they were trained, and they were the best. And no city was going to tell them what to do. So if these are the best of the best and loyal to Caesar, it makes sense that they would guard the Roman prisoners who were to stand trial before the emperor. From other accounts, it seems that Paul was actually chained to one of these imperial legionaries day and night. These guys were strong, they were mean, they were rough, and Paul was well-educated, a Pharisee. He was part of the cultured life. This was a big change for him. So Paul and these guards were at the opposite ends of society, but literal shackles and chains forced them to be together. And how did Paul react? He saw this as an opportunity to share the gospel with each of those guards. At first, they ignored Paul as he discussed Christianity with his friends. He dictated letters to different churches. He prayed for the Christians and their churches. And, And they would hear bits and pieces of this, and they'd probably try to sleep, tried to ignore it. He'd get in conversation with Luke or Timothy or somebody else, and, and, uh, and uh, people would come and go. But you can imagine it kind of got their interest as he would dictate these letters and praying for them. Weeks passed, maybe months, but over time, some of these tough men who got chained to him time after time after time, maybe on a week's rotation, I don't know how it was, but they would come in for the day shift or, or they would miss a couple months and come back. I don't know how it was, but they got this. This guy was different than anybody else they had to deal with. What made him different? Something about Jesus. Something about these churches. Something about the way he believed. And over time, some of these tough men got interested in the message of the gospel. And they learned that Paul's crime was his belief in Christ. (laughs) He said, they came to understand that my chains are in Christ. That's the reason why he was there. Some of them began to ask questions, and Paul was glad to share his faith. Little by little, this resulted in these big burly guards coming to Jesus Christ. Now you can imagine, these new Christians began to share their faith. Now everybody in the whole 10,000 Praetorian Guard is being evangelized by other big dudes. And others began to listen. And not only there, but then they would go out in the marketplace and they would catch a thief or they would do something else, whatever they were doing out there, and then they began to tell them about Jesus. And soon the rest of the people in Rome were beginning to hear the gospel being preached to them by big dudes with swords and spears and shields and the training. And guess what? Some of them got intimidated in becoming disciples of Jesus, but some of them actually began to see if it can change the big dude guard, then maybe it's good for me too. Amen? And so they began to come to Christ. And Paul wrote that everyone in the Praetorian Guard and others that these men had contacted with outside the guard heard the gospel, and some of them became Christians. (laughs) So that it became evident, verse 13, to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. He said all of this was for the furtherance of the gospel 
chopping down, making the way for the gospel to get through. Paul's chains enabled new conversions. Again, I ask, what's our excuse? There was a point in time, I don't know if it was still going on, but when, when the Iron Curtain was up, there were people behind the Iron Curtain who were Christians that were praying that America would get under chains because we had it so easy. Because they were sharing the gospel by sneaking around. We have the ability to assemble or not assemble. And we choose not to. And we've become less and less a Christian nation. I read an article this week in the Voice of the Martyrs magazine. It just came out, this issue, about how Muslims claim, and this is their claim to fame, and this is what they sell wherever they go, that if, if everybody would buy into the Quran and buy into their religious system, and that that would become a, a government where everybody belonged to that system of living under Islamic law and Islamic government, that you would have a perfect society in that particular country. And this is what they preach. This is what people are converted to. We have a system that works, they say. The only problem in this article is it told about Iran which has been totally controlled by Islam for 40 years now. This is the 40th anniversary. Yet they couldn't understand in this article as they, as they were interviewing people in Iran about the Muslim faith, and they said, we got a problem here. People are leaving the mosque. Our mosques are becoming more and more empty. If this was a system that worked, why is it that people are leaving the system? Because they're tired of the oppression of women, half of their population. They're tired of promises that are broken. They're tired of a religion that's being forced on them. Everybody do this, everybody do that. Bow and pray at a certain time every day and all this kind of stuff. But there's not changing them on the inside. And so what's happening is underneath all of this, covertly for the last 20 years, 300,000 Iranian Muslims have come to Jesus Christ. When there's chains and imprisonment, people make a way. And they smuggle Bibles in, and some of them get killed for their faith, and some of them get beheaded, and they still keep going. Because they want the truth of the gospel to get out to their people. And some of them are ostracized. Some of them are, are treated as dead by their families. Because they become followers of Jesus Christ. In spite of persecution, Christianity is up to 300,000 strong in a country that's totally run by the Muslim religion. Paul's chains enabled new conversions. I love it, folks. You can't keep the gospel down. When you have a committed Christian, there's going to be a way that he or she finds 
to get the gospel out, regardless of their circumstances and their problems. And maybe we do have it too easy. Talking about adversity, but yet the gospel advances in the middle of adversity. The second thing was Paul's confinement encouraged new confidence. In verse 14, talks about these guards becoming Christians. And then he says, And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Other Christians who knew Paul was in prison, they were initially discouraged. But when they heard that he was leading Roman imperial soldiers to Christ, this gave them boldness to begin to share the gospel in their neighborhoods, wherever it was. Wouldn't that be a, a great thing? Look at what Paul's doing. He's saving these, these big old dudes who have mom tattooed on their arm. I don't know. And they, and they got scars from sword fights and everything else that they have gone through, and they're coming to Jesus Christ. Well, if he can do it to them, certainly I can tell my little widow neighbor lady about Jesus. Amen? And there's somebody in your neighborhood that he's, would, you'd feel confident enough to go tell about Jesus? And so that was really kind of cool. says this gave them boldness to share the gospel in their neighborhoods. And through this letter, Paul is telling his folks over there in, in Philippi, the church there, he said, guess what? You're in a Roman colony. I know that you got Roman soldiers stationed in your city. I know that you're forced to do things to honor the emperor and, and worship these other gods and stuff, and you refuse to do it, and you're taking your stand for Christ. But guess what? Get out your axe and start chopping down the tree because you need some boldness and some confidence that there are people in your community that still need Jesus. Now, when Christianity is attacked, our natural tendency is to keep quiet about Jesus. Hide your cross underneath your shirt so nobody can see it. Slip in a little slang, a cuss word here and there, whatever. Try to fit in with the crowd. Tell a dirty joke now and then. The tendency is to hide our Christianity and our Christ-likeness, and, and we, we just kind of back off if there's oppression, if there, if there is any, any kind of attack. But Paul's example should encourage all of us that we can speak up about the change that Jesus has brought in our lives. We're all worried we're going to have to argue theology. We're all worried that we're going to have to get in discussions about how many angels can sit at the end of a pen or something. I don't know. With the stupid stuff that we get concerned about and we argue about in Christianity that has nothing to do with the sinner out there, and he doesn't care. All He doesn't care about the theological differences. He cares whether or not you got Jesus in your heart and whether you're willing to share it or not. 
because they need an answer. They're depressed. They're discouraged. They're down. Their spouses left them. Their kids don't care. They disrespect them. And they wonder who in the world has an answer. And their next door neighbor won't get out the axe and chop down a tree to get over there and tell them about Jesus. Oh boy. This is almost as tough as your class this morning. <laughs> See, we have this natural tendency to withdraw and, and cover up and go to, go to our church and worship the Lord there. Some of us are really brave and we actually put our hand up in church. I'm being a little... Who should be the nicest people in society? Who should be the most gracious people in society? Who should be the most integrity people of society? Who should be the most moral people influencing our neighborhood? Who should be the ones out there that are making a difference? It should be the Christian. They should be knocking down some trees and saying, we're here, we're alive, we care, we're voting, we're, we're involved, we're walking, we're walking for Christ's Pregnancy Center, we're doing something in the name of Jesus around here. We do exist. There's an answer to your problem. His name is Jesus. And I'm making up this song. <laughs> Sounds like a tune that's on the radio, but it ain't a Christian one, is it? Anyway, I don't know. So oh, we're all worried about what we're going to do. But I tell you what you need to do. It's very simple. When they have issues and problems and they come to you... And, how, how come you're different? How do you handle it? You know what? I used to be just like you were. Confused, upset, mad at the world. And then I heard about Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah, I know you don't want to hear about Jesus Christ. You had somebody that, that told you about him, and, and they didn't live the life. But I want to tell you, Jesus changed my life, and all that's gone. And a new way of living has come, and I would just love for you to give it a try. Amen? It isn't hard to tell them what happened to you. Don't argue about all this other stuff. That's not important. What happened to you? Jesus came into your life. And they're either going to call you a liar or they're going to have to say, I'm glad it happened to you. Right? Because you can't argue with a, a, a witness about yourself. Tell your story what Jesus did. Can you confidently share your story with someone else? Christian woman who was arrested in Iran and interrogated for two weeks. Her husband was a pastor. They came and got her, hauled her away in front of her kids. She talks about how the kids were traumatized for weeks after they come back. Or she came back. Her husband took even longer. But while she was in prison, she wrote this. Well, it was written in the article, but it's her words. Quote, after a while, you know, they keep pulling her into interrogator. They want her to give names. They want her to, you know. She said, after a while, the fear just goes away. Can you imagine? And boldness comes. Sure, they can bring fear. They can scatter people. But eventually, the people grow bold, and then they're not afraid anymore. And she actually started praying that she would be able to get to this judge because they'd call her in and they'd say, yeah, 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 and then they'd shut her off. 
And she said for 45 minutes one day, the judge shut up, and he even forced some other people to come and listen, and she testified to them about Jesus Christ in the prison in front of the judge, and he took it. Very interested in what she had to say. I just think of that, there's no way, no way. But she says, once you get in there, might as well be bold. Tell them about Jesus. What else are they going to do to you? Kill you? Honestly, it has never been easier for us in America to share our faith than it is today. Never been easier. In America, we don't have to smuggle Bibles or sneak into someone's house for a Bible study or a worship service. Today, we can boldly email, text, or post our faith to a group of friends who will hopefully find the confidence to share with their friends as well. We can do it all the time, every day, in just five minutes. It's never been easier to share your faith. When it comes around to your spiritual birthday, you know when your spiritual birthday is? You know the day when you found Jesus? Just put a post on there. Today is my spiritual birthday. Ten years ago, I found Jesus Christ. Boom. What? No, you'll probably get back. Good job, brother. Keep going, sister. I'm with you. You might embolden somebody else. To share their faith. I remember when God's Not Dead came out, and we went and saw the movie, and a bunch of other people did, and they told you to pull out your phone and text everybody, God's Not Dead, and send it out to your contact list. Everybody in my contact list is a Christian, just about. <laughs> but I sent it out. Other people went and saw the movie. I got one for my sister. All of a sudden, in the middle of the Weeks later, or maybe it was before I went, I don't know, God's Not Dead showed up on my screen. I was like, oh, that's from my sister. She must have went and seen that movie. <laughs> you can't find an easier way now than to just, boom, let it out there. Let people know your relationship with God. Some of you are doing a very good job with that. And we had an answer machine back in the days before all this, poor cell phones and whatever, and make my mom upset. She'd call our house, and we weren't there. The answer machine would go on, and Debbie was quoting scripture for half an hour. It says in this chapter and verse, and so on and so, that if you do this, you will add, and there will be blah, blah, blah. Now leave a message after the beep. So, I mean, you know, she was going to evangelize anybody who called our house. My mom said, Who wants to listen for five minutes of preaching before you leave a message? <laughs> Where is she? Anyway. <laughs> I just think it's cool. We can evangelize so easily now and tell others about Jesus Christ, and we don't even have to see them face to face. But how about that? We could even do it face to face. Because sooner or later, somebody's going to wonder what about that joy? What about that peace? What about that love? Especially if you're praying for that person. And God's going to create a way where you can come together, and they're going to say, tell me about Jesus. You're going to say, there was a little boy. Well, actually, there was a baby born in Bethlehem who was the son of God. And he grew up, 
and started teaching at the age of 30. Gathered some men around him, and he showed the world how you should live. And the world got mad and hung him on a cross. And he died on that cross for the sins of all humankind, yours and mine. And I heard about Jesus one day, and I believed that maybe he could help me in my situation. So I prayed and asked him, take away my sins. And you know what? It worked. The load was lifted. The sins were gone. And so I began to experience a change in my life. There was things that I no longer wanted to do, things I started to do. And you can tell him the story. Because it's your story. It is your story. How Jesus changed your life. Paul's confinement encouraged new confidence in other Christians to share Jesus. But there's one more form of adversity that Paul faced, and this one bugs me. Number three, their competition enlarged the proclamation. Their being a group of preachers. Verses 15 to 18, some indeed didn't preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some from goodwill. The former, who preached from envy and strife, preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains. But the latter, the ones who preached in the right motive, out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense by the wrong preachers or in truth by the right preachers, what do I care? As long as Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. And I'm going, Paul, you're nuts initially until I think about it. This adversity seems strange at first, but according to Paul's letter, it actually happened that some Christian leaders supported Paul's ministry and preached the truth like he did. They were sorry he was in prison. They prayed for him to stay strong as he defended the gospel. They continued to preach Jesus to their congregations. But other leaders were jealous of Paul's leadership and ministry because wherever he went, people said, did you hear what Paul did? He started another congregation in Philippi and another one in Ephesus and over there at Thessalonica. And look at this guy. He's an amazing person. People are coming to Christ. And they're going, hey, wish somebody come to my church. And so they want the attention and the fame that Paul had. They were jealous of his ministry. And so... They felt like they were in competition with Paul. And then they heard the wonderful news that Paul is now in prison. He can no longer go around as a missionary starting churches and doing all these great things for Jesus Christ. Well, that gives me an opportunity to have the biggest church now. Because the evangelist and missionary is in jail. Can you imagine So they began to preach Christ as they had before, but now with a different motive, which was to be bigger than Paul, more important. Get their name out there. Don't you hate it when adversity comes from Christians? 
other Christians? Sometimes there's a competition between denominations. Sometimes there's a competition between churches. We can compare our numbers and, and show off our buildings and who has the largest membership, who has the nicest sanctuary, who, who is the offering the most ministries out to the community, and, and who is, on and on it goes. Which church gets the highest award at the district assembly? The numbers game can be very discouraging to pastors and to people. Denominational pressure can backfire, causing hurt instead of health in our churches. And our district leadership is under a lot of pressure. We have a new district superintendent that's been in there for a couple of years, and we need to pray for him and support him because he's in a lot of pressure. Why? Because our district, like others, is losing in attendance and membership. Because America is on the decline. Older people who were faithful are, no, are dying and less are coming in in the younger realms. It's a statistic across America. So he's under a lot of pressure to change the decline in attendance and so district leadership in turn put pressure on local pastors and I feel the pressure every time I go to a district event I do that's okay I understand it now I used to go to district events as a young pastor I think it was my first pastor and finally I stood up and said I'm tired of hearing It don't matter what I said. But there's a lot of people that are hurting. Because the competition or the drive or the... But I was reminded again this week, as I have been many times, and the older I get, the less it bothers me. But the more I realize my part and my call, <laughs> I need to stay co focused on my call and my mission. I can't do the district superintendent's job. I can't do the pastor, somebody else's church, their job. I have to do the job God is calling me to do. Amen? And that goes for you as leadership or as non-leaders in this church whether you're on the board or head of a class or not, you have to do your call and ministry that God has laid upon your heart. And you're not responsible for everybody else. You are responsible for yourself. And I believe if I'm faithful to my call and my ministry, God is going to grow Christians. And God is going to bring in new Christians. And that's my call in my ministry. And i got to keep focused on that. I am to prepare and preach God's word and to pastor those in my church. If we grow spiritually, that is great, and that's what I want. If we grow numerically, it's an added bonus. The goal of ministry is not a big church, but the goal of ministry is new Christians coming to Christ and Christians who are in Christ growing. 
Amen? And going. Oops. That's the part where we struggle. Because we become Christians and we get strong in Christ, but we fail to share the good news. And the reason why churches aren't growing in America today is because we've been complacent for many, many years because people came to us. And no longer will they just come to us. You have to go to them and invite them about Jesus and to Jesus. That's the difference, folks, and we're not trained for that. But I keep trying to tell you, it will, it will work if you start working it. Church history is full of examples of leaders who use their positions to advance themselves. People like successful pastors. People like leaders who get results. People vote for the names that they know. When it comes to church elections, they'll vote for the persons they know. Maybe not for the best person for the job. There's names that get recognition. There's been pastors at this church that, woo, big time. There's pastors at other churches. Good things happen. Personalities, the right situations, the right time. Things begin to happen. But if all of our best years are behind us, folks, then what are we focusing on today? God has got us here, this group, for a reason. Not to minister to yesterday's, not to try to do yesterday's work, but what is God calling us to do today? This ain't even in here, but it's good. We have to reach today the people that are lost around us with the people that are here today. I can't reach them with yesterday's people. They're gone to their reward. God is calling us to be the one to meet the people here. And Paul does not condone the selfish motives of these Christian leaders. He doesn't. He doesn't say that's a good thing. No. Neither should we. But we should remember that the gospel is greater than the selfish motives of imperfect preachers. And sometimes God uses selfish efforts and faulty preaching to reach someone else with the gospel. And many charismatic leaders have gained followings only to disappoint later because it was built on them and not built on the rock, Jesus Christ. And sad to say, we've seen them tumble and we've seen them fall. Don't build your rock on Marlin, build your rock on Jesus. Build your faith not on a man, build your faith on Jesus, the God-man. Regardless of what happens to me or Debbie or anybody else, that's not what you should be building on. You build on Jesus Christ. That rock will never, never shake. It will never float away. When the floods come and the rains come, guess what? The house stood because it was built on a rock. Get your eyes fixed on Jesus. I think somebody wrote that in the Bible, didn't they? He's the author and the finisher, perfecter of our faith. I think Christian leaders could learn from Paul's example. Paul's attitude is not competition, but proclamation. He said, okay, 
These guys are glad I'm in prison. They think this will help them to build their, their reputations. Fine. They just keep preaching the truth. If they would just preach the truth, I don't care. Their church can get bigger than my church. But just preach it. Preach it. They may have the wrong motive, but as long as they preach the gospel and people are coming to Christ, Paul's going to sit in prison and rejoice every time he hears another person came to Jesus Christ. A victory over the devil is a win for the church. Every new believer is a win for the body of Christ. And so Paul could rejoice, and he says, I will continue to rejoice every time Christ is preached. I know there's some churches in town that are bigger than mine. I just hope they're preaching Jesus and people are coming to Christ. I know there's churches in town that are smaller than this, but I hope they preach Jesus and people are coming to Christ. That's all that matters. If they're sitting around having nothing happening, then I'm worried. But I'm not accountable for them. I'm accountable for God laying it on my heart. I probably would never preach this passage, but here I am in Philippians and here it came. Mm. It's not my favorite message. Paul is a better man than I am. He was rejoicing because the gospel was advancing in spite of adversity. <laughs> I can't, I just, doesn't that kind of get to you? Paul was in prison, but Roman soldiers are coming to Christ. Paul is in chains, but other Christians are gaining confidence to share about Jesus. Paul heard some preachers are glad he's in prison, but Paul focused instead on the fact that Christ is being proclaimed to sinners even through their false motives. And he says, I'll rejoice anyway. So Paul's example of difficulties let us know that as Christians, we are going to have some struggles and problems. Uh, alert here. If you're a Christian, you're going to have some troubles and difficulties in life. I don't know who told you that everything's going to be peaceful and calm and wonderful the rest of your life. Because what I have experienced, and most people that I know have experienced, maybe there's an exception, but most of us know the scripture very well. In this world, you will have trouble. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So in the middle of our trouble, we keep our eyes focused on Jesus, and he will help us to get out an axe and begin to chop down some of the things in our lives that will keep us from getting the gospel out to somebody else who needs Jesus, because we've only got a few more days here, and we're going to be done, and we're going to go on to our reward, and who is going to take our place? Who's going to sit in your seat? Who's going to continue the work? Have you found your replacement yet? Who are you discipling to be the next generation? Because if we do not, there will not be a church. We have an obligation to fill our spot. 
we want this church to continue. So we're going to have some struggles. We're going to have some problems as Christians. Some will come from the devil and sinners. Some may come from other Christians. But Paul's example also teaches us that we can find good out of our troubles. And as long as we keep our focus on doing God's will, that God will make it possible for us to experience some victories, even though we may do some suffering in the process, we will experience some victories. No human likes suffering, but God has always continued to work through the suffering of his people to share the story of the suffering Savior. What obstacles are we willing to overcome in our personal lives, our family, our neighborhoods, so that someone new can hear about Jesus? The gospel can still advance today in spite of adversity. I believe it. I've seen it. It works because Jesus is still alive. And he still wants to see a difference in another life that he died for. He died for them to become Christians. Just as he died for you to become Christians... We need to share the story of Jesus and the story of our conversion. What is God asking you to do today? It's family altar time. It's a good time to talk to the Lord. If you know someone who needs Jesus Christ and God's bringing them to your mind, why don't you come and pray about it today? As our praise team comes and we stand, we start with prayer, folks. You start with prayer. The burden of prayer is where it begins. Lord, lay some soul on my heart. Love that soul through me and help me to do my part to win that soul for you. Isn't that what we need to do? Come to Jesus. Bring that person to Jesus today. Bring that person to Jesus. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. But if you bring them and pray about them, I guarantee you God's going to speak to them. That's what he does. He speaks to them. They still have to choose, but he will speak to them. He's promised to do that. Let's call on the Lord today.
for today, to bring to an altar a prayer. I figured that most of us had somebody on our heart. Let's pray together that God will lay someone on our hearts, someone we need to reach for Jesus. And let's pray for the other requests that we have as the body of Christ. Lord Jesus, we talk to you today because... I think we're more concerned about physical needs than we are spiritual needs. We confess, Lord, today that we are not Paul. We do the best we can up to a certain extent, but we don't have the burden Paul had. So I pray, Lord, that you will begin to lay on the hearts of our people the burden for the lost in their family and in their friends. Because we need somebody else to find Jesus before it's too late and they end up in hell. And Lord, we're sorry we don't see that. So I pray that you begin to just lay it on our heart. Lay a person on our heart and help us to begin to pray and seek God for their heart because we want them to come to Christ. We also lift up, Lord, physical needs. There's so many. We also lift up financial needs, family needs, relationship needs, decisions, work situations. There's so many things that bother us so many things that affect our lives. But Lord, in the midst of all that, can we find someone to pray for who needs Jesus? I pray that you will guide us to do that. And I'm sorry, Lord, I'm not a good enough leader in this area. 
Grow me. Grow me. And I can do better. I pray for our children that don't experience God's love anywhere else, that they would experience God's love at this church. I pray for our teens that if they don't know love in any other form or fashion, that they would learn the love of Jesus by coming to the groups of this church and our services. The world is so messed up, what they call love today, but may they experience the love of Jesus and find what real love is and then adjust life according to that. Bring a desire in adults' hearts and minds to pour themselves into someone else so that before we die, we will have someone to take our place. Serving the Lord in our community. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the example of Paul. And help me, Lord, to start living up to the example of Paul. I need to do better. Thank you, Lord. Now be with us in our time of worship because I believe you've heard our prayer. I believe, Lord, that you're going to answer our prayers. You're going to speak to hearts. You're going to draw us closer to you. You're going to get us, Lord, burdened for the lost. And you're going to allow us this week to share some way the message of Jesus to someone else. Thank you, Lord, for doing that. Thank you for hearing our prayers about the other needs in our lives. And, Lord, we just lay them here before you. And we just say, Lord Jesus, we're in your hands. Take care of it. We believe in you. We're trusting in you. Be in the Emmaus community as they wrap up today. Pray especially for Cindy that it will be a special day for her. We love you, Jesus. Let's worship. In Jesus' name, amen.